Welcome to Movie Maniacs. Mike Rags and Chuck Curry discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Rags and Chuck Curry. I'm good. I thought you said umpires, so I had ten baseball movies, but I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. Last, <laughs> you better ad lib very quickly. Yeah, you know, last week we had the top ten movies that we would like to see remade, and you know I hate remakes. Today it's yeah. top ten vampire movies. You know I hate vampire movies. Well, next, you got to take a bite ne- out of this subject. Ne- yeah, okay. yeah. Next week it's going to be the top ten Woody Allen vampire movies that should be remade, and you can get all my dislikes all in one. But I am doing <laughs> great. <laughs> I am I am doing great, and uh, you know it's uh, not as not as well as the Tampa Bay Rays, but I'm doing pretty well. And uh, beautiful day, beautiful weather, so uh, great time to talk about going inside into an air conditioned place to watch some movies. Yeah, I mean we've talked about uh, this for a long time now about will movie theaters come back? Will people go back to the movies? And I think you're seeing some really positive signs. A week in and week out. Uh, this uh, past weekend at the box office, a big story was the Super Mario Brothers, uh, 141 million over the weekend, and it did 204 million in its first five days of release over the weekend uh, Easter holiday. That is the biggest uh, opening ever for an animated movie, beating out Frozen 2. That is a you know a very big positive. It appears that the audiences really dug the film. It should have some solid legs going forward. Uh, John Wick 4 place second, uh, adding another $14.4 million, which is $147 million three-week take. That is another solid number. Uh, Air, which is Ben Affleck's new directorial effort, he co-stars alongside Matt Damon in the story of Nike and the Michael Jordan sneaker. That did $20 million in his first five days. The studio, which released that film, loves that number. Uh, adult-oriented fare, which uh, this film has gotten some ter- terrific reviews. I think it's like 98% positive on RottenTomatoes.com, meaning this should have legs going forward. And if this movie could get to the 60 to $80 million box, uh, box office mark domestically, uh, for a movie that they uh, initially considered going straight to stream, that would be great news for uh, the industry as a whole. Now, Dungeons & Dragons plays fourth, 13.8. It did drop 62% losing a little bit more altitude than uh, they would have liked, but still 61 million two weeks of release. And Scream 6 ran out the top five, 3.4 million, 104 million in five weeks of release. You get a horror film blowing past 
the hundred million dollar mark domestically, and uh, that is a very uh, good thing. You know, it's interesting because uh, just off the top of my head, Deadline Hollywood, which is a site that I like a lot. Uh, a couple sites that I go for can for my movie news, which I think are the best in the business. One will be Deadline Hollywood Daily. Another is a blogger, uh, Jeffrey Wells on Hollywood-Elsewhere. I think those are the two main spots. If you like film, you like the industry as a whole, and you like to get accurate, interesting, and thought-provoking news on the uh, industry as a whole, those are two good sites. But they were talking about movies uh, on Deadline Hollywood Daily that are the most that have been the most profitable blockbusters released in the last uh uh, well, the, the last year, and it was interesting to see how they break it down. Like the Batman did, I think seven hundred and eighty million dollars worldwide, and its net profit for Warner Brothers was one hundred and seventy million. Uh, I just looked at their their article yesterday again. The movie Megan, which is a horror movie, uh, netted uh, Bloomhouse seventy eight million dollar profit. Uh, so movies are make, there are a lot of movies that are making money. Uh, which is good. Uh, what we need in the industry as a whole is we need the lower tier movies. We need movies like a movie like The Whale to do well, which it, which which for the most part it did. Uh, but a movie like Air is what they call a really interesting barometer film because we know that the big popcorn movies are pulling people back to theaters on a steady basis. We need movies that are more character driven. When that starts to happen on a consistent basis, and you get more of that product into the pipeline. The industry, uh, meaning the studios and the theaters as a whole, will start to get healthy and the outlook will be, uh, I wouldn't say we're ever going to get back to where it was pre-COVID, but we'll be a lot closer than uh, we've, we've, we've been up until, let's just say, uh, six months to nine months ago. Yeah, the dangerous thing is that pre-COVID, the movie industry was uh, teetering on the brink, you know, the the profitability of theaters started collapsing in 2018 2019 was a terrible year for profitability um in part because they had overbuilt theaters um i think that you know we have to understand that where we will get back to will be that theaters will be a nice little marginally profitable business uh it's never going to be the blockbuster if you will that might have been at one time and also, yeah, you, you need to see things like John Wick and Air do well because, you know, you just I, I don't think you can have a sustainable model where all of your movies are cartoons or are all based upon either comic books or video games because that's a very narrow group that goes to them. And eventually they age out and have children and... You know, my, my daughter grew up playing Super Mario, but I don't think they've ever considered taking their children to go see that movie. So I, I think, you know, it's still what we should be hoping for is getting to a point where movie theaters can survive long term. But I, I don't think you're ever going to see them be super, pro, super early profitable because the profit was actually declining well before COVID. I agree, but here's the question I have for you and to the audience to think about. The question would be, does America need movie theaters from a cultural point of view? That's one fold. And the second question, part B to that question, would be, do, do, do studios need theaters 
to survive. I'll give you my thoughts, but go ahead. You, you, you touch about those points. Well, from a cultural point of view, I'm going to say that, yeah, it's great to have movie theaters like the Pocono Cinema and other independent movies that show movies like The Danish Girl. Um, because that's that's where that's when we're talking culture. I would hate to think okay. I would hate to think that Mario Brothers is a hallmark of of culture. Uh, I think yeah. I, think, I, I guess my, my, my point I'm, I'm talking like the interrelatability. Let's just say the way people embrace sports in this country, right? For the the NFL, like uh, apple pie, you know, uh, s- s- certain soda brands. They're just part of of the culture, and I, I think going to a movie theater. Uh, has been a big part of the culture for you know 100 plus years I, I, and, 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 and for some reason during COVID, not for some reason for a reason but it, it feel during covid that the, the the studio system really turned his back on trying to get the theaters back in line i think just simply by the fact that people got tired and i see it owning businesses i just see massive people coming out in droves over the last few weeks that i haven't seen in the last two years which is really good news for for uh for, for the economy i, I think because i think this summer is going to be huge where people going out to restaurants ice cream parlors and hopefully movie theaters can yeah I, I think two, two things one is i actually believe yeah. movies are a bigger cultural thing in other countries than they are in america and you see that from some of the global numbers that in some countries going to the movie is the only affordable escape people have mm-hmm. Uh, the, right. the second thing is, yeah, you know, people love going to sporting events and they love going to concerts. They love to go to things where they can interact and they really love things where they're outdoors. I don't know that there are that many people that were really saying, hey, you know, I'm tired of being indoors in my house. I wish I could go in, be indoors in a movie theater. So, you know, it's part of that. Yeah, we, we movie theaters are a great form of entertainment. I think we could survive without movie theaters just as i think we could survive without opera we wouldn't be as good of a country if we could um i think that they you know they they have a place in this country but the problem that i still see is the people who were the ones who always went to the movies as an escape the people who went on tuesday afternoon for the five dollar ticket and the discounted popcorn the blue-haired people the people who really were the backbones of movies out of the top tier, because it was never the old people that were going to see the blockbuster movies. They were always geared towards younger people. But the the depth of the movie business has always been the people that go every week, the people that used to show up at Pocono Cinema, not even know what was playing and say, okay, it's Wednesday afternoon, and I always go see a movie on Wednesday afternoon. Those are the people that I wish we would get back because for those people, the movies were actually, in many ways, their only escape in this country. And uh, I, I have, don't know if that has yet come back. Yeah, true. I mean, I hog it back to, you know, the 80s and 90s when, when, when uh, you know, seeing a Friday 13th movie in a movie theater, you know, opening weekend, those, those screens used to be packed. And obviously... Uh, movies now play on 4,000 plus screens you know back in 1989 when Tim Burton's Batman came out they expanded the the, the total 2,000 Batman played on more screens than any other movie uh, ever Uh, before that you go back and you know me and Mike talked about this many times on the show you go back to 75 and Joy's playing on 450 and they're rotating 35 millimeter reels 
uh, around neighborhoods in, in the country as a whole to get that screen, uh, get that movie being played in, in different parts of, of different neighborhoods and different cities and, and suburbs. Uh, a very different landscape. I, I, that's a given. Uh, and I, I have to accept the reality of 2023 is not, you know, ni- 1975 or, or 1989, but uh, very different landscape. But I do think as a whole in closing on this point that movies are an important part of, of, of our culture. And I, I hope this summer is a big one. Now, before I get to a couple of new trailers that we're releasing get, and, and throw out my opinion, I just want to point out, you know, we always talk about the change in landscape and how the country uh, in terms of pop culture feels. But in general, you know, always think about uh, patriotism and, and we live in a divided country. There was a moment this week that made me feel good about life. And Cal, if you got a chance to see it, Jeremy Renner, who had that horrific snowmobile accent, and his chest was crushed. And if you look at the interview with Diane Sawyer and the video of him in the hospital, it's amazing. Uh, I mean, I think the average person, maybe 10% of all people, would have survived what he did. I mean, it was just incredible how badly injured he was. So he comes out as a guest on the Jimmy Kimmel show, and to see Kimmel and the audience as a whole embrace him, I mean, with love, you could feel it in the room. Uh, watching that on on television. If people missed it, you could catch it on YouTube. But it made me feel good in a moment to to be an American. Uh, I know that sound might sound trivial, but uh, that's the stuff that I love about the populace and the country as a whole. Uh, you know, people felt for Jeremy Jeremy Renner felt good to see him healthy. I mean, he came out of keen, but overall, guy looks great. Uh, and it was a good moment. You, you, did you get a chance to see any of that stuff? I didn't because I, I don't watch late night television because what late night, you know, late night television, which used to be Johnny Carson and even for a while Joey Bishop, even Merv Griffin had a show for a while. It was entertainment. It was fun. Now today, too far too much politics in late night television, so I don't watch it. I did see, the, I did read the story about it. You know, it was a great event, but again, I think that you know it's one of those things where. Our culture has changed. Our late night television now is uh, people like Colbert uh, with um, you know their steady dose of uh, left wing politics, and you know it's probably turned off half of the country that used to watch Johnny Carson. Yeah, it, it, I mean that is an interesting point, no doubt. A couple trailers that were released that I actually really liked. I hope we touched last week on Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, the the uh, they they cut. Uh, a second trailer, and I tell you, this trailer was really good. Great response on the internet. Uh, I, I think they did a good job fleshing out the reality that Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones uh, is, is not a young guy. It did a great job in the beginning of the trailer establishing that. From what I hear, uh, that this movie is good, and and I and I get that from some re- reliable bloggers that I trust inside the studio. Totally believes. In Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, and, and one person, uh, a blogger who I trust, said inside the studio they feel that there's a strong potential they have another Maverick on their hands. That, that this is going to hit a nerve with fans of the Indiana Jones franchise, understanding that Indiana Jones is his last hurrah, this is his last adventure. He's now uh, Harrison Ford, 80 years old, uh, and that this is going to be very um, reflective the way Maverick touched audiences. Uh, last summer, I, I hope that is true because I think this is an important movie 
coming out this year. And again, we've established the fact that Spielberg is not involved as a director. James Mangold is. I have tremendous respect for him as a filmmaker. He did an amazing job on that movie, Logan, the the older Wolverine movie with, with Hugh Jackman. I think that was one of the best superhero movies ever made. And it was R-rated. It was edgy uh, as, as, as a superhero movie could be. But I loved that film. And he has just gotten word... Uh, was released this week that he's going to direct a Star Wars movie and there's no way he's being hired to direct Star Wars movies unless he's delivered a really good product on Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and by the way uh, uh, Disney announced that they're going to do three Star Wars movies one bringing, the, bringing, bringing back Daisy Ridley is a character of Rey and then Mangle's Star Wars movie uh, Ken he says that he wants to do uh, the origins an origin story of the Force in general, sort of like making the uh, Ten Commandments version of Star Wars. And I gave some thought when when I read that. I actually love that idea. You have thoughts on what I just said? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, I, I love the they already have the part in it where Donald Trump delivers the Force and says, "You know, this is the greatest Force <laughs> we ever had." And I, I is love. Direct, no, wait, question: Is that directed by Mel Brooks? Yes, yes, yes. And I, I, I love, I love in the new Indiana Jones movie the product placement for Miralax and Depends because you know they're real, they're really depending on these these movies. Here's the thing: those jokes were last year. Yes, they are. Now I like that trailer. Go ahead. Oh no, I, I think I think that you're probably right that Indiana Jones has the ability to be another Maverick because. The people I said who aren't going to the movies, the the people of my generation, the people that show up on Tuesday or Wednesday, they show up for this one. They're they're the ones who remember it from their from their younger days, and they they will come to see it. The same reason why I'll tell you something: if Maverick, um, if that was the first movie in the Maverick series, we wouldn't be talking about it. We really wouldn't. It was just it was be it was the nostalgia that made that movie as big as it was. Yeah, but listen, I'm a, you know, there's a, what's here's what's interesting. A lot of people over over decades, especially critics, always had an issue. A lot, this for some reason, serious critic, critical affair has an issue with sentimentality. I never did. Like, I, it's one of my favorite emotions. Also, sadness in film is one of my favorite emotions in film. But, but to, to reflect, and I said when I watched, I, I talked about this on this program. When I watched Maverick Top Gun. It reminded me very much of watching John Wayne's The Shootist in 76. It had a reflectiveness to it, and that, to me, gave that movie its energy and gave it its power. And and if, if what they say is accurate with this new Indiana Jones film, hopefully they can catch that essence of, of, that, uh, of that, that feeling, because if they do... You're going to get a lot of repeat viewings yeah, for, for this uh, movie. Yeah, maybe, maybe next what they should do, and I, I'm serious about this. Uh, <laughs> m- maybe we have Timothy Robbins, and uh, uh, my mind goes blank. But we have a re- remake of Shawshank Redemption, but from 30 years Morgan later. Freeman. And, Morgan Freeman. And, and, yeah, Morgan Freeman. And they they, re- they reflect back on their life after yeah. the escape. That might. That's actually that, pretty interesting. That you know, I never thought of that before because that movie. Hmm which is one of the greatest movies ever made, Shawshank Redemption. It ends on a note where it would be very, in- it actually might be very interesting to explore uh, 30, you know, 30 years later. 30 years later. Let's, let's, let's pitch that to the studio when we finish this show. How's that sound? Yeah, again? because I think somebody, you know, if, if we had been making movies, if we made Casablanca 
today yeah. in, in today's environment. There would have been a sequel yeah. with Louis and uh, and Rick because they they set it up in our in, in modern parlance. And there's a lot of those movies that end, and you ask actually ask yourself, boy, I wonder what happened next. I wonder where they yeah. went to, you know. And, and that that would be that would be one of them. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think that's interesting. It, that never happened with the Wizard of Oz, and any you know, it's interesting. You're talking, you know, one of the greatest movies ever made, and anything they did after the original Wizard of Oz prequel, uh, remit, whatever they did, uh, it, it you know, decent, but never never captured the full blown movie magic of the uh, original. One other trailer that was released this week, uh, Disney um, Marvel released uh, trailer to the Marvels, which technically. Is a sequel to Captain Marvel. Uh, Brie Lawson's back. Uh, Miss Marvel from the, the Marvel TV show. They merge characters. Uh, Nick Fury, Sam Jackson. Says, I gotta tell you, I, I was like, ah, I don't. I'm not expecting much. Maybe I don't care. I found the trailer highly enjoyable. I, it comes out in November. It was supposed to come out in summer. They got to do some more post production work, so they kicked it to November. I really did like what I what I what I what I seen it very enjoyable trailer and it did did his job of selling me to wanting to see that uh film anything else on your mind before i kick into some uh this week in tv and movie history Ken? yeah I, I did watch the limited series on netflix transatlantic about uh the resistance in uh, marseille at the beginning of world war ii it's at, at times it's a little bit strange but it's a it's actually a good um Good limited series, seven editions uh, to watch for people who like historical fare. And we seem to be having a lot of, uh, especially Netflix offerings uh, lately um, on that period of the Holocaust. So uh, um, a, a good recommendation there. Cool. I got to check that out. Couple of uh, Before I get into birthdays of interest, uh, along with that Star Wars announced, they did announce they are going to release... Uh, Disney's going to release Return of the Jedi at the end of the month for one week in theaters for its 40th anniversary. That is the we, uh, the Ewok uh, movie, which, uh, which I loved back in 1983. I had to tell you, uh, I was at an age in 83 where I was full appreciation of what Star Wars was. Uh, I, I, I'm a big fan, obviously, of the original trilogy, all three of them. And I think it's actually pretty cool they're going to re-release it in theaters for this generation Again, who've never seen a Star Wars movie, the original trilogy. So, Return of the Jedi, Jedi back in theaters at the end of this month. Yes, yeah, so and that was the movie where my, you know, movie where my three-year-old, who's now forty, whatever, uh, stood up and yelled, "Shoot the teddy bears!" So, yes, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I don't have to tell her to take her children to see it. Yep. Uh, birthday of interest this week, uh, April thirteenth, nineteen forty-two. Uh, Bill Conti, who did the score to Rocky, uh, turns 81 years old. He didn't score a ton of movies. He scored Rocky, the Rocky franchise, Karate Kid franchise, and the right stuff in a couple other movies. But uh, what a great score. Going to fly now uh, from Rocky in 76. I remember seeing Rocky at the Avenue Movie Theater in Brooklyn, New York, uh, and walking out of the theater when I was very, very young. And running home, I was so motivated by that musical score uh, and the, the movie as a whole. Uh, thoughts on Bill Conti? Um, well, I'm, I'm going to have thoughts on really on the uh, idea of scores in, in general. Is that I think people uh, underestimate the impact of the score. And yes. um, if, yeah, if, good thought. 
Yeah, if you ever watch a movie and turn off, you know, because with some DVDs, you'd have that ability. Turn off the score. It's a totally different movie. And whoever it was who thought early on, and it's, it's, it's a bit of throwback even to silent movies where they played the piano along with it. But um, whoever it was, was said, boy, we should have a score to a movie. First of all, made John Williams rich. But second of all, I think uh, greatly enhanced the movie experience and we all know those movie themes that when we when we hear them you know who who doesn't know the theme for the magnificent seven or the good the bad and the ugly it's a great point it's a great point we've talked about this before on the program you have a you need to do a movie right you need a script you need a good script hopefully a good script although you don't always need a good script to make a very good movie you just need a script if you have a good script then you need a director you need a good director who runs a show and hopefully you have a producer who is respectful of the talent involved. But here's the thing. The, the composer is, I say, 50% of the project. Like you said, you think about John Williams. Steven Spielberg would tell you he's not Steven Spielberg without John Williams. That is a team. But you agree. If you, take, if you ever watch a, a movie, um, if they show the editing process without the score, it's a completely different experience. And here's whether you, we, whether you believe in a higher power or not, it is a miracle, in my opinion, how somebody like John Williams or Bill Conti have that talent to watch a, a, a product that in a lot of ways, many times, is unfinished. There's no music to it. All this thing is a picture and some dialogue. And then they, in their head, they have to visualize what I think ultimately is a miracle of music to go along with that story. It is one of the greatest uh, perplexing, to me, miraculous talents of mankind, people who score movies. I, I I don't know how they do it, how they get the vision to do it, but it is truly incredible, Ken. And, and that's why, despite me being a huge theater fan, I absolutely hate dramas on the stage because there's no musical score to them. Yeah, and, and what moves you, what stirs your soul and pumps your adrenaline is a musical score. I mean, you know, to, to, to see E.T. E. resurrected, and flying a bike, you know, with that John Williams score. It's just, you know, it's just incredible, memorable stuff. Here's a birthday of interest uh, we could touch on for a couple minutes. Ed O'Neill, uh, born this week, 1946, turned 77, uh, known for two major uh, iconic TV shows, Married Children, which ran from 87 to 97, played Al Bundy, and then he did Modern Family, which ran from 2009 to 2020. And before we touch on that, he actually did a TV movie Back in 1981, Popeye Doyle, where he played the character Gene Hackman did in The French Connection, he did a great job. This was a good TV movie. wasn't picked up to TV, to, to a series, but Ed O'Neill could do serious drama as he did here, and he was really good in it. Or he could do what I think is one of the most iconic television sitcoms ever produced, and that would be Married with Children. Funny, 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 and edgy. I love that show, Ken. Yeah, and he still has the single-game touchdown record for Polk High School, of course. But uh, he also was in Little Giants opposite yes, Rick, Mo- like that opposite Rick Moranis. And, you know, what, what, what a dichotomy between him and Moranis. And I'd say, you know, I, I, I stopped watching after the seventh or eighth season, but um, yeah, Modern Family was a great show as well. But, of course, yes, his, his Al Bundy is classic, and I see some reels every once in a while from it. The one... He did one with a, a fat lady in the shoe store that I just thought was absolutely uh, fantastic because 
Al Bundy was almost as politically incorrect as Archie oh. Bunker. Oh, uh, listen, I think it's a fair comparison. Uh, you know, Carol Connor's Archie Bunker, iconic, and uh, I think Ed O'Neill's Al Bundy, also iconic, uh, in, in somewhat very similar, uh, non, non-politically correct, very edgy, uh, somewhat offensive to people, but uh, really good stuff. So happy birthday, Ed O'Neill. Now, before before we'll, before we get on to our top subject of the uh, of the show this week, which will be our ten favorite uh, movies featuring vampires, a uh, couple other this week in movie uh, uh, movie history. April 15, nineteen ninety seven, Volcano with Tommy Lee Jones and Anne Heche was released. I gotta tell you, I'm a fan. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Anne Heche had good chemistry in this movie. Released the same year as Dante Dante's Peak, another Volcano movie, which I actually liked a lot. But I like Volcano uh, a lot. And also, um, this week in TV history, NBC, April 16, 1978, releases a miniseries called Holocaust with Fritz Weaver, which I think is one of the best miniseries of all time. Powerful. If you like Schindler's List, if you love Schindler's List, and you've never seen Holocaust, find it on, it'll be on probably DVD. I don't know if it's on a streaming service, but what a great, powerful piece of, of television. I think this was, uh, also James Woods was in it, and I do believe it was Meryl Streep's first uh, acting job was Holocaust back in 1978. You ever see it, Ken? It was great. I, I, I did. The memory fades. It was a long time. They all sort of fade together but I, I i did indeed see it and uh i i i join you in recommending it as uh, something people should uh, seek out here's one last thing before we get on our main topic now think about this as is a, a point of reference to our culture in general this week in tv history 1962 walter cronkite begins his anger job on the cbs nightly news where have we gone since then ken you know the funny thing is Walter Cronkite was a uh, left wing almost almost to socialism, and you know what? You never would have known it from watch from listening to his broadcast. And um, I'll, I'll tell you, Mike. I think to me the greatest tribute to Walter Cronkite that I could have ever given was when the Challenger blew up, and I said to myself, they should bring Cronkite back to anchor this coverage because. He was associated with the space program more than any other person. Um, one of the most trusted men ever in this country. And uh, I wish journalism could get back to that. And I wish, uh, you know, Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity and anybody else you want to pick would look at Walter Cronkite and say, you know, that's the way to do it. Let's give the news and people won't know what our politics are. Yeah, I agree. I was thinking about this the other day. I don't want to dwell too much in politics of television, but the reality, I said this to somebody the other day, I just don't care what side you're on of the aisle, what you think, but the airwaves in general, just because you can say something, should you say it? You know, and I, I just think I, we probably pass a point of no return, but uh, I think we have to start, hopefully, eventually, getting reflective and, and, and just growing up and understanding that we don't we don't need to be swayed twenty four hours a day. But you know that's that's the story for another and, and, day. Yeah, so but, and, and, but, but and much like the ending of Mash, people mm-hmm. tuned in to that last episode, the last broadcast of Walter Cronkite yeah. to hear one last time, and that's the yeah. way it is. Yep, I agree. Let's bounce into our subject 
of the week top 10 uh movies that feature a vampire uh, I'll, I'll let you start 10 through 6 ken and then i'll, I'll follow suit okay I'm, I'm gonna be quick because again this isn't my this is not my uh, forte Number 10, hey, you mentioned uh, uh, Nicolas Cage before, so I'm going to start with the Nicolas Cage movie from 1988. It's a comedy. I'm going to have a lot of comedies on my list here. Nicolas Cage, Mary Conchita Alonso, Jennifer Beals, a literary agent, falls in love with a vampire. It's a cult classic. It bombed at the movies. It's Vampire Kiss from 1988. And yes, the vampire gets killed by a steak, and it's not a T-bone. No, number nine, the the when you talk about see, and this is a TV series, TV series with the absolute last worst episodes. Number one on that list is my number nine show. Of course, it is True Blood, Anna Packin and uh, Steve Mo- Moyer. Um, you know, I loved it because I liked vampires, and it wasn't a vampirey vampire thing. It had great social messages to it. The um, you know the uh, prop ma- profiteering on True Blood and also the the whole thing of um, we had this whole thing of the the issues we've been going through with uh, immigrants and and the like uh, when True Blood a lot of uh, a lot of subtle messages in there. Number I love show. number eight. This was also a movie uh, starring Johnny Depp, but I'm going to go back because I actually remember this. It ran from 1966 June 27th. Until April 2nd, 1971, it was a soap opera. Yes, folks, a soap opera on ABC. It was called Dark Shadows. It followed the life of Barnabas Collins, played by Jonathan Frid, and David Selby's Quentin Collins. Of course, it, it went between the 18th century and the 20th century, Barnabas, of course, being a vampire. And um, it was a it was a great cult classic soap opera and it's hard to think that we actually had a five day a week soap opera about vampires and that was dark shadows i wasn't a big fan of the of the movie but i'm not a big fan of johnny depp number seven number seven okay it had a feet it had a vampire although the vampire was turned into a wolf in this movie it was from 1966 it was strange because it was at the same time as the tv series was actually still on television it was Munsters Go Home, starring Fred Gwynn, Yvonne DiCarlo, Al Lewis, Butch Patrick, and a little trivia here, Debbie Watson as Marilyn. Because there were actually three Marilyns, two in the TV okay. show and one in the movie. I, I, I thought Al Lewis was great on that show, and yep. so was Fred Gwynn, but he played the vampire. Yes, he played the vampire. And number six, uh, well, this was the last Mel Brooks movie, actually, to date, and I don't think we're going to see any more from him. Mel Brooks played Van Helsing. Leslie Nielsen played Dracula. And, of course, it was 1995's Dracula, dead and loving it. Um, it was, you know, like I said, the last Mel Brooks. I wish we had seen more after that. I think uh, perhaps the creative geniuses had, uh, had, or had run their course by then. But, uh, again, anything with Leslie Nielsen and Mel Brooks in it has to be pretty good. So that's my number six. Good list. Uh, yeah, I remember watching Dark Shadows as a kid when I used to come home from school. There used to be an, uh, an afternoon an afternoon soap opera, right? Yes. Dark Shadows. I mean, Dark, and it, it was in black. It was in black and white. Uh, it gained a cult following, and uh, I, I do remember that coming home from school and watching that. Here's my ten through 
six. My number ten, I, I have a comedy on my list, Ken. Love at First Bite from 1978, starring George Hamilton, which was a hit back in the day. People laughed at this movie. I thought Hamilton was really good. And when I think of George Hamilton, I think of one thing, being tan. And uh, he was, I, I don't think he was an underrated actor, but he was a solid actor with a good presence and a very light, likable uh, guy. My number nine, I'll go with uh, TV mi- miniseries, A Salem's Lot, which is based on the second novel published by Stephen King. The miniseries came out in 1979. Always remember uh, James Mason, one of the most fascinating actors of all time. Uh, David Soule, Ostrovsky and Hutch was a star outside uh, Lance Kerwin, who recently passed away. When I think of that actor, I always think of somebody who is in, internally young. But uh, that featured a scene where the vamp, a vampire at a window, which is iconic uh, scene. Actually, they just remade this, I believe, for the big screen, which will be out later this year. My number eight, Monster Squad, which came out in 1987. Fred Drecker, who also did uh, uh, Night of the Creeps, did a great job on this movie, which is really the Goonies meets uh, Universal Monsters. Dracula was in this movie, really good. He's sort of the star of the show, but this is a really good movie that a lot of people may not have seen, Monster Squad from 87. My number seven, I went with Abin Costello meets uh, Frankenstein, which featured Bela Lugosi returning as Dracula. What a great movie. Uh, This, like some of the timeless movies of all time, Wizard of Oz. It's just a timeless movie. Uh, for whatever reason, it hits a chord with people. Abin Costello's claim to fame, highly entertaining. Great to see Bela Lugosi as Dracula in this film. So that's my number seven. Number six, I went with Near Dark, directed by Catherine Bigelow, who went on to win an Oscar for The Hurt Locker. This movie came out in 87. Great casting with Bill Paxton and Lance Hendrickson. What I liked about this movie in terms of vampires really focused on the issue of vampire being in the light and the dark and when he's in the light it's not a good thing some great effects in this movie some great casting go packs and awesome lance henderson awesome so near dark my number six uh so uh there you have my 10 through six ken okay i, I was actually going to put in love at first bite i had forgotten that i was going to put it as five but i'm going to stick with the number five i have because this one got three out of four three point four out of ten stars on imdb uh this movie sucks basically um, um ken ken jong was in it he played darrow um this movie features vampires who are mistaken as the black-eyed peas a mother of a character who has an affair with tiger woods a leading man who is dating lady gaga and of course the two stars edward and uh and Becca agree to marry as vampires. She agrees to become a vampire if he marries her. It is Vampires Suck from 2010. And yes, that movie sucked pretty bad. That's my number five. Good pick. Uh, my number five, a movie that I, uh, I love. It was I mean, probably my favorite f- film of that year. Uh, it was a remake of Let the Right One In, which is an awesome foreign vampire movie. But Let Me In in 2010... I love Chloe Grace Mortez, who was hit girl and kick ass stars in this movie as a as a young vampire who befriends a 12 year old boy who's being bullied at school. This has some creepy moments. It has some moments that just energize you as a revenge plot. She's a fascinating character. Indeed, is extremely well made, well shot. I love this film. Let me in 2010. That's my number five. 
Okay, for my number four, you know, if, if True Blood was the Sopranos of vampire series because it showed, like, true life, the, the daily life of vampires, of course, this is the Romeo and Juliet of vampires. The 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 franchise has generated $3.4 billion in uh, ticket sales worldwide, booked by Stephanie Meyer, Chris... Uh, Kristen Stewart as Bella, Robert Pattinson as Edward. Um, one of the few vampire movies I've actually watched any part of. I don't know if I've watched any of them all the way through, but The Twilight Saga, because again, totally different type of take on the vampires. You had a vampire as a protector. You had um, a lot of uh, and a lot of social themes coming uh, coming out, and clearly a Romeo and Juliet uh, story, and something that. Uh, I, I think really did uh, show vampires in a different light. I gotta say, I watched them all in a theater. I know this franchise was incredibly popular, and I got a feeling it's going to be rebooted. Uh, I have no doubt it's going to be rebooted. I actually liked the la- I actually liked the last couple in this franchise. It's not my favorite franchise, but I get why uh, it was a hit. Certainly hit a co- chord among its. Uh, it's 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 fan base, no no doubt. My number four, I went with uh, from Dust Till Dawn, which is a Robert Rodriguez movie uh, that was uh, co-starred Quentin Tarantino and George Clooney. At first half is sort of a crime drama. Second half, uh, they meet up in a vampire bar, and that is some awesome stuff. Uh, the effects are, are really good. It's exciting, and I got to tell you, this showed Clooney. After ER, and I'll have, I still think Clooney's best work is on ER, but Clooney, it showed him in an interesting way where he had a maturity and a darkness to him that he had not seen uh, on a big screen before. And this movie has a very big following. It's well done. It's like two films in one, which I like. Uh, but the last half of the movie in a vampire bar is really good stuff if you like vampires. So that's my... Number four, I think Clooney's pretty awesome in this movie. And of course, the best-selling drink in that vampire bar was, of course, the Bloody Mary. Yes, it was. And and I think I think I had a couple that day. Yeah, I, I'd love to see a movie where they uh, actually tunnel underneath the blood bank and break into it. You know, that'd be probably be a pretty good movie. Uh, my my number three. Okay, now I'm getting into <laughs> I'm getting into real vampire movies. I'm done with the the comedies. Done with the uh, the different takes on it. Okay. 1992, Francis Ford Coppola, Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's in color. It's got great visuals. It's got great costumes. It develops the sexuality. It's always been beneath the Dracula story. There is a sexuality to Dracula. Gary Oldman, Winona Ryder, Keanu Reeves, and Anthony Hopkins in that movie. So 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula was my number three. Here's the thing about this movie. It would be on a lot of people's lists. It's not on mine. I tell you what. I remember seeing this in a theater. It was highly hyped. And it left me completely cold. I can't explain it. I just found it... I found it void of any energy. And it just didn't work. It did not work for me. This movie has never really worked for me. I always found Coppola, uh, a master filmmaker of Godfather 1 and 2, Apocalypse Now, The Conversation. His work beyond that was very up and down and I, I just this movie never really worked for me it was a big box office hit a lot of people love it I'm just not one of those people here's a movie that I do love my number three I talked about this before on the show 30 Days of Night uh, takes place in Alaska 
vampires in Alaska in the dark, in the snow. Uh, Danny Houston is an awesome vampire in this movie. I mean, awesome. Very different take on uh, on, on on vampire uh, ism. Uh, Josh Harnett, Melissa George are the stars. I love the the feeling, the setting, the claustrophobia, the darkness of Dirty Days in Alaska. And this, to me, is a uh, I I don't want to use the word classic, but it's for me, it's close. I, I think people who know this movie love this movie. And on a winter night in the winter, if you're in the mood, this is a great one. And I use I don't use that word lightly. This is a great one. Thirty Days a Night from 2007. If you're in the mood for what, Chuck? Uh, if you're in the mood for horror. Oh, okay. I was thinking. I was thinking. Well, this, this, this is our much going on in the movie for anything else. Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is our romantic fair tonight. Hey, honey, let's 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 watch a a vampire movie from from Alaska. You know, I not, the one one thing about this, you know, vampires, of course, are always associated with bats. I have four mm-hmm. bat houses I've put out in my backyard because bats eat mosquitoes. I'm still waiting for bats to come. So. Even even if there's any vampires out there, I have four nice houses for bats. Come on, come on in the, my yard. I need you to eat my mosquitoes. My number two, um, you know, there there is a model for Dracula, and that model, you mentioned him in Abbott versus Abbott and Costello, Bella Lugosi, or Bella Blasco, which is actually his real name. Okay. 1931's Dracula. He created. The model for all Draculas to come, the speech, the mannerisms, the everything he did. Um, it was a you know it's, it's a classic movie. Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing. It is the movie that I mean when you think Dracula, when you think Boris Kar- Karloff, you think of Frankenstein. When you think Bela Lugosi, you think of Dracula. He created the model for Dracula. He was Dracula. I believe he was actually buried in Dracula clothing, um, if, if unless that's an urban legend. But in any event, wonderful, wonderful actor, great role, and it has to be on the list because it is the second father of the entire Dracula genre. So it is you know, 1931's Dracula. I can't argue. I mean, he, he's iconic, uh, and, and, and it was... You know, I can imagine people sitting in a movie theater watching this stuff back in that time period. It, it had to be pretty fascinating stuff because you know that's performance over a, a, a fact, and he he was uh, he simply was great. My number two, I went with Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys from '87. I remember seeing this movie. I saw it at the Kingsway Movie Theater in Brooklyn, New York. It was a preview screening one week before its official release. They used to do that to get word of mouth. I went with my brother had a blast in this movie uh joel schumacher directed it did a great job keith sutherland is lead vampire which really is a riff on peter pan's the lost boys except here you have vampires the two quarries are in this uh i love the cast as a whole it's involving it's fun it has a spielbergian feel to it uh great movie lost boys from uh, 87 my number two you, know, you, you talk about sitting in a movie theater. Well, think think of you sitting in a movie theater. Movies are a new, they're a new thing. You've seen some, and you know that. Yeah, you might maybe you saw Birth of a Nation, and you you see some that are 
uh, some girl being tied to a railroad track and you know everything you see you you, know, you have a preconceived notion what movies are going to be and then you go in in 1922 and F.W. Murnau has a movie for you to see and it's an unauthorized ade- uh, adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel it's in black and white like most black and white movies it flickers it has uneven movement it's grotesque some of the character angles make the character look elongated, make it look even worse. It's Hitchcockian in its feel because you get scared by the cinematography, not by what is going on on the screen. And it is, of course, the father of all grandfathers. Yeah, grandfathers. Yeah, father of all grandfathers. Father of all vampire movies. It is Nosferatu from 1922. It is, to me, and I've only seen parts of it, but it's probably the most scary film I've ever seen. Just it, The character in Nosferatu, if that guy doesn't scare you, nothing will. Yeah, it's a scary character. I got to tell you, I, I did a revival of this on the big screen a few years ago, uh, Halloween time. It's a strange movie. Oh, I mean, it is. In, in, it's a strange movie. Uh, it, it's an interesting movie. I, 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 and I understand its legacy, no doubt. I don't know how this generation would, would, would take to that film, but it is a very interesting, weird, strange movie indeed. I'm glad you put it on the list. Good pick. My number one, for me, it was easy. Uh, it's Fright Night from 1985 because I think Chris Sarandon is Jerry Dandridge is the greatest vampire in the history of film. The way he plays that part, menacing, sexy, uh, intelligent, it's all there. He's iconic as a vampire chris sarandon hall of fame number one vampire but you know uh, william ragsdale is the kid who lives next door who, who uncovers him uh knows it uncovers the fact that a vampire is living next door to him uh roddy mcdowell is peter vincent the vampire hunter of tv fame that they get that it's just a great movie it's a great great movie but I've never seen a performance as a vampire better than Chris Sarandon. So, Friday Night 85 is my favorite. They remade this in 2011, which I do like. I mean, some people love it. Some people hate it. I like it. I, I just think the original's better. But the remake is, I think it's good. Uh, Carol, Colin Farrell plays uh, the Dandridge vampire role, and he's good. But Chris Sarandon is great. So, my number one will always be Friday Night from 1985. You know, I, Chris Sarandon has played some roles that... Uh, you know, I, I love him in The Princess Bride. And he's he, great in Dog Day Afternoon. He's great yeah, in Dog yeah. Day Afternoon. He, he's, had, he's had such a... He, and, and they're different They're different roles. But, you know, the one thing that... For, you know, going back to putting Nosferatu on the uh, list. Yeah. There, I don't know what it is, but we've had this fascination, in, uh, especially in uh, film, about vampires. And, uh, we have. We have. And there's no, there's no doubt about it. And I don't think that will uh, cease to continue going forward. And you know the the book, the book wasn't a great success when it was written. The the book became a big success because of the movies that were made based on it. But um, you know Stoker's Dracula has been a great thing. And I think what we love about Dracula is, yeah, it's um, you know, it's something otherworldly. It's a monster, if you will, but it's classy. It's usually dashing, debonair. It's that yes. it's that look of Bela Lugosi and. Uh, you know they're 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 great movies, and usually they don't involve the slasher kind of blood. Just 
and you have a little puncture on the neck, just like you get from a cat bite. You know, nothing big. I agree. This has been fun, Ken. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to the remakes of uh, Woody Allen vampire movies next week. I'm trying to think of what else, Chuck. What other? I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna kick that to Halloween time. But to anyway, always a pleasure, Ken, to the audience on Whoa Whoa. Thank you very much to our podcast audience who love movie maniacs. We greatly appreciate it. And uh, have a great week. Go to the movies, people. Okay, bye, Chuck. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening to Movie Maniacs. Download one of our archived episodes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. by Federated Media.